Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Hello, Cove Church. My name is Winston. I am the worship director here, and today it's my pleasure to share with you. And we're going to begin with our Ephesians passage that we've been reading together uh, through this whole Fathom series. And this is out of Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, The Message. Let's read this together. I ask Jesus that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breadth test its length, plumb the depths, rise to the heights, live full lives, full in the fullness of God. Amen. And, you know, this is a a very special translation that Peterson did. I'd love to just look at one of the words here. Um, The message says, take in the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Other translations do it differently. Uh, you've got the NIV, which says grasp. Uh, I think the NL, NLT says understand. And then the KJV, uh, beloved translation of mine, says comprehend. And you can see there's this whole spectrum of meaning that we can be pulling out here uh, from the cerebral comprehend to something a little more experiential, like what Eugene Peterson is searching for. He says take in. Um, so why do I bring that up? It's, it's part of what I think we're going to experience today as uh, we hold theology as both the knowledge of the God and something that we experience and we take in. And so I invite you to take it in today. Um, reach out and test the breadth of Christ's love. Um, we're uh, in this sermon series, Fathom, and I like that word. We could have used that word, Fathom. Um, and today I have the pleasure of speaking on the topic of soteriology. Now, uh, that's a big word. It's probably got the most syllables out of any of the ologies we've been talking about. Um, and it comes from the Greek word soteria, which means salvation. And so, We learn in the Old Testament that salvation is something we receive from God. We learn in the Gospels that our salvation is found in a person, Jesus Christ, whose name Yeshua literally means God saves. And it's the story of that person, how and why he came and what he did for us. And the story that unfolds in that is the Gospel. So today I get to talk about salvation as we receive it in the gospel. I want to discuss the question of what the gospel is and a bit of what it means to be saved. And when I first was asked to preach on this topic, I thought it might be a simple thing uh, because so many of us have heard the gospel, right? And we believed it. And isn't the gospel just like Christianity 101? Well, the more I dug into it, the bigger the gospel seemed to get. And so that's a little bit of what I hope we will comprehend and take in today and maybe fathom. Um, We're going to ask the question, uh, what is the gospel? How deep does it need to be? 
And is the gospel that I believe in, is it deep enough? I want to ask you a question. What is the first time you've heard the gospel? Do you have a memory of it? I do. Uh, for me, I learned about the gospel when I was seven or six, maybe, somewhere in there. Um, I saw baptism service at my church, and I asked my mom what was going on. Uh, I mean, this was the early 90s, and back then, uh, men at church still wore suits and had these wide ties, and the ladies, they had big hair, and they wore these dresses, and I just, uh, my memory's a little blurry, but I just remember kind of floral patterns and shoulder pads, and uh, I, I didn't get it back then. I still don't get it now. Um, it looked odd to me, but what struck me even more was seeing these folks put on white robes, get their nice hair all wet, and take a dunk in the front of the church in a pool. And when I asked my mom, what, what's going on here? Why are they doing this? She shared with me the reasons, and she shared with me some version of the gospel. And later that year, I too put on a white robe, and I took the plunge. People have been hearing this gospel message, and they have been getting baptized for like 2,000 years. And I don't know how many people have done that, but it's got to be in the billions. What is it about the gospel? What even is the gospel? Is it so easy to answer? I mean, the gospel is something we share, right? It's something I'm talking about right now. But there's also four Gospels in the Bible, and there's a bunch of Gospels out there, right? There's the social Gospel, the progressive Gospel, the prosperity Gospel. There's Gospel music, right? It's not so easy. Um, what we may have heard, though, is that the Gospel literally means good news, which is true. It comes from the Greek word evangelion, which in English means good news. And evangelion is the good news about Jesus. It's where we get our word evangelical. So evangelicals must be good news people, and evangelism must be the good newsing of the world. Evangelicals like us are famous for sharing this good news. We share it with others, and we are famous for coming up with new and efficient ways to preach and share this gospel. Here's one streamlined version that you're probably familiar with. It goes like this. One, God loves me. Two, I have sinned. Three, Jesus died for me. Four, I need to decide to live for God. For many of us, this has been the gospel in a nutshell. Four points in less than 20 words. And it's simple enough that a seven-year-old like me was able to understand it. Maybe you've heard even something simpler, like, like this. You need to believe in Jesus so that you can go to heaven when you die. That's nice and short, and it sounds like pretty good news to me. And it's even got the ring of like a snappy news headline. But let's take a closer look. Remember our word for the day, soteriology. Each one of these statements that I mentioned is a soteriological statement. It's a salvation 
formula, right? You did X, but God did Y, so you get Z. Salvation. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that either of those formulas are not true, but here's the question I've had to wrestle with. Is a formula like that really the gospel? The gospel is the good news. And the problem with the news is when you reduce things down to a soundbite or a headline, you're at risk of leaving out some important information. And people might start thinking that maybe that headline, that's all there is to know. Or even worse, we might distort the truth altogether. The news can be like that. And we know this all too well. I mean, we are living in the age of fake news. So just for fun, I've got some silly examples of news headlines that really miss the mark. Um, this is a really famous one, uh, maybe the most famous of all time in terms of a mistake headline. Uh, Dewey de defeats Truman. Truman won. And so the guys that printed this newspaper were just, they didn't wait around to see what actually happened before they printed their paper. Um, this one's just ironic. You have Mississippi's literacy program shows improvement. <laughs> I sure hope so. Um, and then this last one, it's just plain wrong. It says, we hate math, say four in 10, a majority of Americans. Um, yeah. So uh, soundbite headlines like this will grab our attention, but are they doing a great job of relaying the actual story? Um, the gospel we tell has to be grounded in the full story. Otherwise, it might be misleading too. Did you notice that the salvation formulas earlier uh, that I mentioned said absolutely nothing about Jesus as the Messiah? I mean, this maybe will leave us asking questions like, does it really matter that Jesus was Jewish? And can we just dump the Old Testament altogether? Or this, I, I believed the formula, I prayed the salvation prayer, and I even got baptized. What else is there that really matters in the end? Have you ever wondered those things? I have. And I think that's because our gospel has shrunk too small. So what can we do to learn and preach the gospel in a deeper way, in a greater way, in a way that it was really meant to be heard? Well, Remember that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each wrote their own version of the gospel. They literally begin the gospel according to. And when they tell the good news about Jesus, they don't boil it down to a quick pitch. Because for them, the details mattered, the story mattered. When John wrote his gospel, he wrote a lot more than John 3.16. In fact, he started his gospel at the very beginning, literally, like before time. Um, and when Matthew starts his gospel, he starts with Abraham, because for him, the good news story begins there. But somewhere along the way, our versions of the gospel get shrunk down into something resembling a tweet and packaged for passers-by. Does it need to be that way, though? We should note that the gospel preaching in the New Testament is so lacking of quick pitches, 
the apostles in the book of Acts, when they routinely preach the gospel, they, they do these long speeches, and, and they talk about the whole story of Jesus and sometimes even unfold the entire history of Israel. Paul, in his letters, is rarely brief either. Now, do I make this point to say that the gospel can only be talked about if it's long and difficult to understand? No. But what I do want to communicate more than anything today is that the gospel is so much more grand, beautiful, and captivating than we are often led to believe. And the soteriology, the salvation truth that flows from this story is so much more compelling than we often give it credit for. When the whole gospel is told, it has real power. It gives hope for those who hear it, purpose for those who believe it, and for those who live it, it offers complete transformation of life. Now, because I've already probably burned about 20 minutes of my time up here, I'm not going to be able to unfold the entire gospel in all its glorious detail. I'm going to do a flyover of some of the larger story that our formulas tend to miss and spend a little more time on Jesus and the cross. And I'll end with what salvation means for you and I. So taking a cue from the Gospel of John, I'll start at the very beginning. Maybe you've heard the story of a creation and a garden in the beginning how mankind, Adam and Eve, was placed there, was made to flourish in the loving, life-giving presence of God. How they were given a purpose, too, to be image-bearers who would carry the glory of God out of Eden and into creation, to be fruitful and to multiply. But how they became disobedient, and in so doing fell from their calling. They were banished from the garden, cut off from the tree of life, and they fell into mortality, toil, and strife. Now, I'm going to pause for a second. When I've read this story in the past, I've often felt that maybe God seemed a bit harsh. Um, like, all they did was take one bite of this fruit, and now, like, everybody is, is uh, paying the consequences. It sounds like God is, like, really touchy and intolerant of any mistake. Um, but I invite you to see this through another lens. Think about this banishment that Adam and Eve and we all share in. It's a natural outflow of our behavior. Because if God is the source of all life and good, bringing our lives meaning and purpose, to choose to move away from that is to move in the opposite direction. It's to choose to move towards chaos and death. And when we choose to obey our own sinful appetites, we find the garden is just out of reach, and we wander in a wilderness, obeying our own will as broken and lost image bearers. And so salvation, when it comes for mankind, will have to mean dealing with the chaos and death that we have become so entangled with. Humanity will need a new Adam who will lead us out of that bondage and show us the way back to the garden. And so maybe you've heard stories about Abraham, a covenant and a whole nation called Israel. 
how they were set free and given a Torah, which is just literally instruction to show them how to live holy lives, how they were chosen to be a kingdom of priests and take up Adam's mission to bring the glory of God to mankind, how they were given a promise of a Messiah that would arise from among them to save them and to lead them, but how they failed bitterly and were driven into exile with their kingdom and their priesthood, lost and scattered. Now, it always struck me as odd that God would ever decide to save humanity by making a promise to a random group of people, especially when those people would be so unfaithful to him. I think this is a really weird thing for us modern people to understand. Why does salvation come from the Jews? But I invite you to see a couple things in this. Gospel salvation spreads not just to and by individuals, but in and through entire bodies of people. When you think about it, could it really happen any other way? I mean, humanity doesn't exist just as a bunch of individual atoms, but we live and hold together as families, tribes, and cultures. I think about my own life. My mom and my dad, they brought me the gospel. So did my church back in the early 90s. And all those big-haired, shoulder-pad-wearing saints were a part of a larger body of faith that, like Israel, is broken and often unloving, but is also somehow chosen and holy. So in the mystery of his grace, God works to save humanity by working through humanity. Maybe you've heard the story of how those people found themselves back home, but in a new kind of exile. How they lived under the thumb of Rome with a sham king and a sham for a high priest. How they waited for their Messiah to come, to liberate them, restore their kingdom and priesthood, and gathered their scattered tribes. But how the waiting drew on and on. While Pharisees breathed down their neck with Torah keeping so rigid, it felt impossible. And perhaps the Messiah needed to come and save them from that as well. I won't attempt right now to really explain all of who and what the Messiah was thought to be, but I will say that the Messiah, our salvation, was to bring to fulfillment all of God's promises to Israel. The Messiah would be a king that would bring salvation on every level, including ruling as Lord over a new kingdom and establishing justice and peace, bringing the forgiveness of sins that would usher in the glory of God. So this is what Israel was praying for and hoping for, and God answers their prayers. He answers them with a cry of a newborn baby. And for us, this is a salvation event so monumental that we had to press the reset button on time itself. We made it year zero on our calendars, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. So we're living now in the age of Jesus, our Messiah. Jesus did come to fulfill all the hopes that I just laid out, but not in the way anyone expected. 
And to show how, I'm going to use one of the earliest gospel summaries known to us. It's found in the Paul's letters to the Philippians. Uh, but it's thought to have been like composed even before that, probably as a hymn of the early church. Let's read it together. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if you're looking for a quick pitch of the gospel, this is it. Let's start with that first statement, who being in very nature God, being made in human likeness. In the beginning of both Matthew and Luke's Gospels, a child is born of a virgin according to prophecy and also according to necessity because this person was born of flesh and blood and also conceived by the very Spirit of God. This was an unprecedented act of creation in love by God. He brought together an indivisible unity, both of creator and creation. God brought his very living presence to us when we had lost it. Not in the confines of a tabernacle or temple, but tabernacling among us, as John says, living and breathing, laughing and crying. God had in every way become human, but he did not leave his divinity behind this Jesus was the perfect union of God and man. The new Adam, or Adam as he was meant to become. And as the God-man, he carried the holy, purifying presence and power of God into the world, performing miracles. And the spiritual powers of sin and death, they trembled at his presence. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He had even power to forgive sins and raise people from the dead. Yet despite being the promised Messiah, it turns out he was more than we bargained for. So he was despised and rejected. Because the kingdom that he preached and embodied wasn't the kind of kingdom that Israel was looking for. The passage says he made himself nothing. This son of King David had royal blood, but he came from nothing. And he had nothing of his own. He slept on the ground, befriended nobodies, and mingled with the dregs of society. He thwarted every expectation that he had. His teaching flew in the face of all our assumptions. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. He said and did all this and dared to claim divinity, to be called the Son of God. And for that, he was mocked, tortured, and eventually crucified. Jesus died and suffered the worst kind of defeat imaginable. How could he be the Messiah? If he was cursed to hang on a tree, 
And if the powers of darkness could so easily bring him down, how could he be the son of God if he too was subject to death? But as our songs say, death could not hold him. After three days, he walked out of the very tomb in which he was laid, and to the astonishment of his followers, he was alive. And more than that, he was glorified. He bore the scars of crucifixion, but he had been transformed now into something more glorious. And this is where it gets crazy. <laughs> Instead of bringing defeat, his death and resurrection had somehow sealed the decisive victory that established Jesus as Messiah and King. And he reigns not on a throne of human making, but he reigns ascended at the right hand of God. He's a king not only over Israel, but over all creation. He's Lord of Lords. It's a victory so cosmic in scale that it reaches all the way back to the very beginning where this whole gospel story began. What brokenness that banished humanity from the garden has now been banished itself. The sin and death that all that Torah keeping was supposed to help keep at bay, he obliterated it in one fell swoop. The gospel is asking us to believe something really amazing here, something that we can't comprehend or fathom. Have you ever wondered how death could conquer death? It honestly kind of seems like nonsense sometimes. It's paradoxical. Christian thinkers have like pondered over this meaning for centuries. How did Christ's death on a cross manage to accomplish this? People have come up with theories about it. A lot have tried to make sense of it, and maybe some have gotten it more right than others. But all of them strain to explain the unexplainable. So, I prefer the more mysterious and poetic attempts at it. Um, in the fourth century, Gregory of Nyssa puts it this way. I love this. The divine was hidden by the veil of our nature in order that, as in the case of a greedy fish, the hook of divinity might be swallowed with the bait of the flesh. And thus, when life came to dwell in death and light shone in the darkness, that which is understood as the opposite of light and life might be utterly destroyed. For it is not in the nature of darkness to remain in the presence of light, nor death to exist where life is active. Here we see Christ taking our sinful nature down with him into the infinite black hole of death, that point beyond which any light or life could hope to exist, and he unleashes his light and life right there in that place. And he banishes sin and death forever. However we choose to make sense of this, this core tenet of the cross remains for us to believe. Christ died for our sins, that we would no longer be subject to them. The reign of sin and death is over, and his resurrection is the fruit of this, the resurrection life that we now share with him. That's his victory, won by him alone, 
And he did it for you as a gift of love. I could not tell the gospel story without mentioning what John says in his gospel. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What John says about salvation goes deeper than you might even think. Yes, salvation begins with believing. When we hear and believe the truth proclaimed in the gospel, our faith is ignited. We begin to be incorporated into the very life of God, eternal life, salvation. Many would point to belief as the moment when you are saved, but I'm convinced salvation is even bigger than that. It's something that happens not just in a single moment, but it enfolds through your whole life by the work of the Holy Spirit. Take this word from Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This salvation of yours must be, in Paul's words, worked out. Almost like yeast in the dough or a mustard seed, or any of the other analogies that Jesus used to talk about these things. Here's another from 1 Corinthians. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Belief in the gospel jumpstarts our faith. And faith is giving yourself over to the living work of God in you. I guess that's a bit of a salvation formula for you to chew on. Salvation may be won and done on the cross, but it's still doing its work in us. There are parts of us that have not yet been crucified with Christ. Parts that cling to sin and don't look like Jesus. So we hold fast to this gospel and let it do its saving work in us. And this brings me to my last few things. The gospel accounts tend to end with Christ's ascension to the right hand of God and his promise to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the very presence of God, no longer confined to the temple, in Jerusalem, nor even the temple of Christ's body, but it's dwelling in you to comfort, to guide, and convict of sin. The Holy Spirit's business is making you whole and holy. Second Thessalonians says, God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Inasmuch as ancient Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests, so are we. We are the priesthood of believers, and we now carry God's presence with us. We do this by making disciples first of ourselves, but also of others. And the Gospel of Matthew ends with that commission. It says, 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we become evangelicals. We spread the good news to fulfill the prophecy of Habakkuk, which says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as water covers the sea. A full account of the gospel story will point us to a vision of eternity because Jesus is promised to return, to bring an end to this present age and inaugurate a new and everlasting age, which will be the perfect end to the gospel story. It's no accident that the story ends in the same place it begins, not on a cloud up in the sky, but on the ground, back at the foot of the tree of life, with waters flowing out to bless the nations of the world. And this time, the tree is not found in a garden, but a city where the priestly kingdom has been established for all time for the benefit of the whole world. This final snapshot of eternity shows us worshiping and serving God in a way that reflects how we are to live right here and now, blessing the world with what we have been blessed by. So I'll close with this thought. Our gospel salvation is so great. It's bigger than a short formula or a quick pitch. It's got a purpose far greater than a simple punching of a heavenly ticket. It's got way more for your life than even wiping your slate clean of sin. Trust me when I say salvation is going to do a number on you. I guess if I had to talk even more plainly than what I've tried to say so far, I'd say this. If your idea of the gospel has got you hanging out with nothing to do and you just are waiting for Jesus to come back, you need a bigger gospel. If your idea of salvation is something God might just well have done on paper and it's not bearing the fruit of transformation in your life, you need a bigger gospel. Open your heart and let the Spirit show you what He wants to do in you. Nothing that could make you look more like Jesus is, is out of reach. This is the same life-creating spirit that hovered over the waters in the beginning. So if you need a new start, let him move over your chaos right now. And by the power that raised Jesus from the dead, ask God to breathe his life into you again. Invite his Holy Spirit in. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Pray for the strength and mercy to begin in a new way and give your heart and your future over to Jesus. Make him Lord of your life. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com or on all social media platforms at covechurchpnw. We'll see you next time.